The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Welcome back everybody, this is Squawk Box and these are your headlines. US consumer prices fall at their steepest monthly rate since the onset of the pandemic, while the headline CPI figure at 6.5% shows its smallest annual rise in over a year. The easing off in inflation raising hopes that the Federal Reserve could start cutting rates later this year. But officials Patrick Harker and James Bullard stress they will continue to focus on hiking before changing course. Chinese trade slows in December with exports hitting their worst level since February 2020, while rising coronavirus infections sap domestic demand, casting a shadow over prospects for a post-COVID recovery. Tesla continues to slash prices, cutting US price tags on the most popular models by up to 20%, as the EV maker looks to regain ground following a tumultuous 2022. And the U.S. Attorney General appointing a special counsel to take over the probe into classified documents found at President Biden's home and private offices. Right, welcome everybody. So let's digest the key data of the last 24 hours. U.S. inflation appears to show more signs of easing. December consumer prices fell 0.1% on the month, in line with expectations and the biggest fall since April 2020 during the height of COVID lockdowns. On the year, CPI rose 6.5%, highlighting the persistent burden that the rising cost of living has placed on U.S. households. However, the uh, fall in um, or the incline in inflation was the smallest annual increase since October 2021. Now, food prices continue to rise up 0.3%, but it was a steep drop in gasoline, 9.4% lower month on month, that was mostly responsible for most of the monthly decline. Uh, prices at the pump tumbled 9.4%. Second-hand car prices slid two and a half percent and are now down 8.8 percent over the past 12 months meanwhile shelter let's have a look at that which accounts for around one third of total cpi index uh, actually rose 0.8 percent on the month and 7.5 percent from one year ago karen Following the CPI report, market pricing points towards an increased probability rather that the Fed would approve a 25 basis point rate increase at its next meeting. The Fed approved four consecutive 75 basis point moves last year before slowing to 50 basis points in December. Philadelphia Fed Chief Patrick Harker says the U.S. needs to keep raising rates but can slow the pace, saying he expects quarter-point hikes in the months ahead. The St. Louis Fed President James Bullard said it is important for the Fed to get rates towards upwards of 5% as soon as possible, but said the eventual stopping point is more important than how it gets there. He also ruled out cutting rates even if inflation continues on its downward trajectory. 
So I think a big day for markets. We're setting it up, but all important data point, and we saw another rally on the back of uh, the numbers. But there was pushback in some quarters, and I just mentioned Bullard. He was concerned that what happens if inflation goes back up, that the market, they believe, now the Fed is priced for perfection at this point. And the data yesterday played ball. It was in consensus. The market liked what it saw. But what happens if we get a data point that goes in the opposite direction? Because I think there are very wide assumptions now. I mean, Goldman Sachs has uh, an outlook for the year on what happens to trades, for instance, if the US narrowly avoids a recession. Of course, this is linked to the rate path story. It expects that stocks end the year just a tad high from where they are. However, if the economy does go into recession, Goldman sees uh, that the S&P could fall by 20%. That is a very wide margin for error if you're risk on asset at this point because you think the Fed is going to be pausing or at least reversing at some point. The, well, let me just make a couple of quick points and then I know you're going to jump in, Steve. And probably I'm stealing this one from you because um, I think the positive but also maybe the worrying aspect was that most of the decline came in energy prices. So it was gasoline related. And that's great because everybody wants to see the cost of energy go down because it is a tax on, on economic activity. But by the same token, you want to see everything else decline as well just to give you that comfort that we've got confirmation that the trend is in the right direction. And just one other um, point, fascinating piece of research from MAN, the uh, hedge fund group here in the UK. They're talking about reasons to be cheerful. One of the reasons that they uh, suggest is that if we are actually in a confirmed disinflationary phase, history would suggest that equity market return tends to be positive in those phases. So they analyzed the last 100 years, they looked at 19, 19 periods where we saw periods of high inflation then begin to morph into disinflation. And through that analysis, they found that in only one of those periods did the market actually see negative real returns. So in all of the other periods, so that's only 5% effectively of those 90, in all the other periods, they saw positive equity market returns. And some of those returns were actually really quite strong. On average across all 19 episodes, the real annualized return is plus 14%. Wow. They take this period of disinflation as starting from about June of 2022 in their analysis. And ultimately, um, they believe that uh, in terms of the opportunity here, you've got to keep your eye on the potential for equity markets to surprise to the upside, even though they acknowledge that earnings are probably going to come down 10% or so as we watch and monitor the performance of economies over the rest of the year here. So a fascinating piece of research because it runs in the face of a lot of the Jonas at the moment who yeah. are arguing that these equity markets are behaving in peculiar ways. Yeah, look, I'll tell you what I'll do, because I think what we are doing is we're doing the, the equity market chat and we're doing the CPI chat, and we hopefully got a, a CPI expert in the wings as well. So what I'll do is I'll just tell people what happened to the markets, <coughs> then I'll come back and then we'll make a couple more points. So I think it's probably a bit more intuitive than me just talking more about CPI. So look, let's have a look at the market reaction. Uh, and what you can see is it was actually really measured and there wasn't a huge amount of volatility in the market yesterday, because one thing that... Karen mentioned, but we haven't lauded, and that is the fact that the market got it spot on. 
absolutely spot on to the decimal on the headline figure. And on the core, it was yeah, 0.1% away from what I saw. 5.6 was what I saw. It came in at 5.7. So the market absolutely nailed the economists out there. The strategists absolutely nailed the figure. So well done them. So hence, it didn't leave a lot of volatility in the market once it actually hit the figure. Uh, as we said beforehand, if it was a, a decent amount above the expected or a decent amount below, we might have seen some really aggressive moves on the market. But actually, what we have seen is some solid but unspectacular moves yesterday to the upside and adding for the week now because of course the anticipation has been all week we're looking at the cpi uh, it will come in much lower than the previous figure but for the week the nasdaq's now put on 4.1 percent so a lot of bottom fishing a lot of um, uh, looking for growth stocks that actually have some legs to them uh, occurring this week so 4.1 percent higher there uh, the s p is up 2.3 percent for the week and the dow is up 1.7 percent energy yesterday put on a bit of a spurt with wti and brent also rallying in fact wti and brent have put on respectively 6.3 percent and 7 percent for the week as well but let's have a quick look at the treasuries and what they were doing as well uh, in the session again the two-year paper abating uh, continuing to abate and, and as such the uh, the yield declining so the the two-year rallying the underlying the yield coming off 4.16 percent and the 10-year yield now has a 3.4 handle 3.468 is where it is currently trading let's see what the dollar did on the back of this as well actually not a lot on the cable pair that was exactly where it was this time yesterday but what you can see is the euro continues to rally so does that mean the relatively hawkish view that we're seeing from um, central bank governor uh, Lagarde in Europe as well, plus policymakers means that we've got further to go on raising rates in, in Europe than they have in the United States. And look at this as well. I haven't seen a 129 handle on the dollar yen for a long, long time. So we continue to decline on the greenback versus the Japanese currency. And I guess what I just saw this morning, I saw 0.505% as the yield on the Japanese 10-year, the JGB as well. So that's just a, a decimal away or a couple of uh, decimals away from the, uh, from the, the cap of the range at the moment. So it be very interesting to see what that means and whether the BOJ is going to let that one pass as well. Let's have a look at the dollar because it has been rallying, as indeed as gold. Gold's just sub-1900, just about, by a, a couple of... Uh, well, by, by $6 a troy ounce at the moment. But Brent and WTI continuing to rally off their recent lows. I'm pretty sure I saw WTI not so long ago, a few days ago, at 71. In fact, I know I did. Uh, Asian indices, what are they doing on the back of this? So we have mildly positive indices on the Hang Seng, the Shanghai Composite and the ASX 200. The Nikkei uh, down 1.3%. And the opening calls for European markets look like this. So pretty flat at the start of trading. So so I, I agree with you. I don't think I've ever seen. No, that's not true. I, of course I've seen. But, but at the moment, you have got these stunningly divergent camps, very binary. The market's had its bottom. The bottom is in. There are great opportunities. Uh, yes, the S&P isn't cheap, but actually we're prepared to buy it at these levels because we think people have overfactored in the concerns about rates, inflation and recession. The other side, which is very compelling, which is wrong at the moment, it is on the wrong side of the trade at the moment because we've been hearing it ever since we started the start of this rally, is that actually this is a false rally. It is a bear market rally and we've got some very, very big lows to hit. And, and I think one of you said, I think it was you, Karen, said there could be a 20% decline from yeah, here. That was a Goldman forecast if we go into recession. But I think if we uh, consider the factors here, the pushback from the Fed now, 
we get a, a CPI that's uh, playing ball, the, the pushback that's is, well, what about the labour market? If we still see this tightness in the labour market, then it could uh, thwart expectations of really tackling that inflation number, even though there have been encouraging signs coming through. This price spiral that you're still seeing in the labour market around wages could be an issue. I mean, we had some better data. We only inched up on the average hourly wages at the last print. But still, if you think about that number, the overall 223,000 on the headline, the Fed's been hoping for a 150,000 number to try and take some of the heat out of the tight labour market, so they're not seeing it yet in the jobs data. So I think that's important again as we test the market assumptions about being, you know, risk on trading uh, this market rally back up again because they think that the Fed is going to be changing course. That the Fed is uh, data dependent and wrongly positioned because of the data. It feels like we've got one more roll of the dice here. I mean, um, critically, you know, no one's really singing. Uh, the tune of stagflation at this point and and the commentary around stagflation appears to have gone away in the interim and of course to have real stagflation we'd have to see um, economic growth cratering and employment cratering so high levels of unemployment and that really painful kind of period that we saw back in the 70s where ultimately uh, people began to, to just lose hope and walk away from the workforce because they never thought they'd get a job. A time that you won't remember, Karen, but Steve and I, I know, remember when every evening the news presenter would finish the news and then announce how many yeah. jobs had been lost at companies around the country mm. or within industries around the country. And it was always a huge number at the beginning. And then when it came to how many jobs had been added, it was, you know, half a dozen at the pizza factory around the corner. It was, it was always jobs, tiny. They were all manufacturing jobs. They were coal mining jobs. I remember it. It was Jan Pro Leeming, nine o'clock news. Uh, and wasn't it incredible? And, yeah, and we horrendous. never thought those times would come back. And it doesn't seem like they're going to come back at this point because uh, employment remains very strong. So the question is still, you know, how do you engage with the market at this point? And it is challenging. But I'll come back to the piece of research that I was talking about earlier, that, which sounded encouraging on the idea of disinflation. Mann also did some surveys into what happens around when rates peak. They looked at 14 distinct periods over the last 100 years. And comfortingly, they said in only three of those cases, um, in the 12 months following the peak in rates, did we see equity markets significantly negative. So... Obviously, there is the potential here that in this particular model, we might see equity markets uh, rinsed out. But there are positive messages, at least, suggesting that there may be one of these times again where you can hold on to your equities and you can still feel comfortable. So let's ask the question that all of our viewers want to know. And Paul Donovan has got a lot of history on, on inflation. He's written a, a great tome on it as well. Paul Donovan, Chief Economist at UBS Global Wealth Management. Nice to see you, Paul. Thank you for joining us. Look, we can argue whether it's transient or not till we're blue in the teeth. But I think what most of our viewers want to know is, is the Fed doing the right thing? Is the Fed going to crash the economy? Are they right to still be targeting somewhere in the region of 5.1% as a terminal rate? Good morning, sir. Good morning. Um, and yes, I, I shall get you some crayons and paper so you can write an apology to Team Transitory, because of course, yesterday's inflation showed very clearly transitory inflation. So in that situation, I think the Fed is probably going to go a bit too far, to be honest. And not dramatically too far. It's not going to crash the economy. It's not going to go overboard. But I think they're going to have to 
probably look at easing rates by the end of the year because they've probably gone a quarter point or a half point a bit too far in their tightening cycle. Inflation's coming down faster than people are expecting, certainly faster, I think, than the Fed has been anticipating. And the signals are that inflation is actually going to continue to surprise negatively as we go forwards. Because uh, the inflation peaked at 9%, 10% across uh, the West and, and across the US. But you're, you're still right, even though inflation is three, four times above the target level, Paul. Well, the 20, we, didn't, we never said where the peak was going to be. The 2021 inflation was all about durable goods. And what has happened over the course of 2022 is the most dramatic collapse in durable goods inflation we have ever, ever experienced. We've got roughly 70 years worth of history. And if you look at what has happened with durable goods, I mean, it, it's not a gentle slope down. This is off the edge of a cliff. We've gone from you know, over 18% to deflation in the space of 10 months. It's a, a huge, huge change. And that's reflecting the fact that as soon as demand started to go back to normal, the pricing collapsed. Now, the key thing here, of course, is if this happens in durable goods, it can happen in the third wave of inflation, which is being driven largely by profit margins. And if we see demand continuing to moderate, other companies in the service sector and elsewhere are likely to bring down their prices with a similar level of speed, Paul, just as we saw with the durable goods price. Paul, I hate to say it, and, and that, I hear what you're saying about durable. I'm not going to argue about the stats, but you've got to get out there, mate. You've got to get out of the ivory towers because nobody is seeing deflation anywhere in their lives at the moment, whether it's their energy bills, whether it's their wage costs for their employees, whether it's their um, heating their home, whether it's their food costs and the shrinkage, shrinkage we're seeing, but higher prices as well. And the margins are improving for the supermarkets, but they're not improving for the consumers. Nobody in the real world, Paul, is seeing any deflation in their lives. Well, Nobody. unless you're buying a computer or a phone or a car Paul, or a television. Those are consumer luxury goods in many cases. They're discretionary goods. In the real world, Paul, nobody is seeing a deflation in their food bills, in their energy bills, in their lifestyle bills, in, in the, all the costs, in their council tax, in their interest rate for their mortgage. All these things are causing people to go to their employers and say, I need more money. Have you not seen what's going on in the United Kingdom and the strikes, Paul? Well, so this is, uh, this is a very different economy from the US, of course. In the United States, People are seeing deflation in their mortgage costs. The cost of their mortgage went down dramatically a couple of years ago. And of course, they have fixed mortgages. UK with a different mortgage structure, different issue. Absolutely, I agree. You look at the profit margin expansion that you're seeing in certain areas. As I said, the third wave of inflation, the profit margin expansion is something which is under pressure. Here's the thing, though, about profit margin expansion. When people start to rebel against the prices, as, for example, happened here in the UK back in 2010 with the anti-rip-off Britain campaigns, or when demand starts to weaken, those profit margins start to get squeezed very, very quickly, obviously very relevant for the markets. And the point about a profit margin-led inflation, again, we come back to this point, is that it turns around a lot more quickly than a wage-led inflation. And yes, People are upset that they've got falling living standards, and quite rightly, you know, people are experiencing negative real wages. The problem here is, though, they don't have pay bargaining power. If you look at what is happening in the UK, in the US, in Europe, real wages have been falling. That's bad news for the consumer because it means they've got less spending power. 
But what it does mean is that we don't have the wage-driven inflation that sticks around. And that's why over the course of this year, inflation is likely to continue to come down as those profit margins are being squeezed. Well, I want to pick up one on your, of one of your earlier points around uh, this pivot by the Fed later this year, because that is an important one for markets. We've seen the risk on rallies start to take place, but there is still caution out there because of the messaging from the Fed that this time is different. They're still concerned about the labour market, that there's no two-way pricing on inflation in case we go back up. When do you think the Fed will start changing its messaging because of what it's seeing in the data? <clears throat> So I think the Fed is going to have to wait until it sees some easing on the labor market data. Um, but I don't think that that necessarily matters as much to the market, because back in, in June, when we had the, the major policy errors from the Fed, um, Powell tore up forward guidance and just said, don't believe a word I say in the future. And as a result, the markets have taken you know, that to heart and, and aren't believing a word he says. So the markets are, are not listening to the more aggressive hawkish rhetoric coming out of the Fed. I think what the Fed is going to want to see is um, a clear signal that you're not going to get those wage pressures that Steve was talking about emerging, that we're not going to start to see you know, a, a very, very strong wage-driven inflation, because as I said, that's a lot more difficult to get rid of. So what the Fed is going to be looking for is reassurance that the labor market is not excessively tight, it's not going to cause excessive problems. And I think that that does come because a lot of the labor market's uh, tightness, as it appears, is not actually because um, you know, there are too few workers and, and too many people looking to employ them. It's more about the fact that people have been moving jobs a lot. There's been a lot of churn in the labor market, and that distorts the data. So as that churn settles down, and the further we get away from the pandemic, the more likely it is to settle down, then the Fed, I think, is going to feel more confident about changing the rhetoric and changing the guidance. But as I said, I don't think the market actually cares that much about what Powell is babbling on about. They're, they're going to look at the real economy and make their own conclusions. Paul, assuming you're right and the market uh, sees a Fed following your playbook here around the rate story, what does this mean for growth? Because we've seen just in recent days the World Bank downgrade its assessment for global growth. Goldman's, I was just citing earlier, was saying if we you know, narrowly avoid a recession, then stocks slightly go up. But if we go into recession, then stocks fall 20%. What's the possibility that we still see a fairly decent-sized recession in the United States? I think a, a significant recession is still quite low probability. Uh, and the reason for that is that when we look at the consumer balance sheets, you know, how much savings do households have, how much debt do households have, it's actually in a fairly robust picture. Um, and that's something which is going to prevent, I think, a more significant downturn. Now, it doesn't necessarily stop an economic downturn, but I think the risk of, of uh, a more significant downturn is, is significantly reduced by that. What we're looking at, and, and I don't like using historical analogies too often because you know, every cycle is different, but I think it's going to feel a lot more like 2001, where, yes, you do get you know, a, a period of slowdown in the economy, but the consumer probably doesn't really feel it at full force because the consumer's still going to go have a job. The middle income consumers are still going to have savings in the bank. Um, and the falling inflation rate over the course of this year means that their real wages are stabilizing or possibly slightly turning positive. So in that situation, it probably doesn't feel like a recession for the middle income consumer of the US. Well, one thing we do know is that um, everybody's reloading the gun. If you look at the uh, United States, we've got this Inflation Act, which involves spending in excess of $350 billion 
dollars. Europe is now trying to figure out its response and is coming up with similar numbers for a similar kind of act uh, across the eurozone. Ultimately, what do you think the consequences of this are going to be in terms of keeping inflation above central banks' 2% target? Because it seems to me, as much as the central banks continue to argue that they're focused on bringing down inflation through monetary policy, governments themselves are putting their foot on the accelerator and making it very hard for us to see those numbers come back to that target 2%. So do we then just see a period of inflation somewhere in the 3 to 6% realm, which allows governments to slowly pay down their debt and spend money? So I think when, we, when we're looking at the fiscal position, we don't actually have governments sort of stamping on the accelerator. They're stamping on the accelerator and the brake at the same time. So a lot of these things we are seeing higher taxes. We're seeing windfall profit taxes, for example. And in that sense, what you end up with a, is a, a redistribution more than a, a net acceleration. And a redistribution may mean that some prices go up, but it also means that other prices are being suppressed. So I think we've got to be a little bit careful about assuming that just because you know, the headline numbers are, are, are big, and of course, governments always have an incentive to make it sound like they're bribing their voters. But in actual fact, a lot of this is a lot more redistributive uh, over time. And I think that actually, again, you know, when we're, we're looking at inflation, ultimately, the main driver of inflation normally is uh, wage costs, so unit labor costs. Typically, that's about 70% of inflation. Now, at the moment, we've got this really weird situation where it's profit margin expansion, which has been driving inflation. That's a very rare case. But we're not seeing the wage inflation coming through. And with the real wages signaling such weak pay bargaining power, I suspect that actually we are, not this year, but over the course of the next two years, going to be coming down below the 3% number to sort of the 2 to 3% range, probably sometime next year. It's a, it's a bit too short a period for it to happen this year. But again, because profits being squeezed can bring down inflation a little bit faster than normal, it might even happen by the end of this year. Paul, we're going to wrap with you. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Enjoying the spirited discussion. Paul Donovan, Chief Economist, UBS Global Wealth Management. Still to come, everything you need to know about December's CPI print, including which one food item is up 60% on the year check out cnbc.com. China trade slows in December but still comes in better than expected. Sam will have a breakdown for us in just a moment. And for more on how cooling US inflation is impacting uh, the wider markets, you can check out the Scorebox podcast. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com.
In other central bank news, the Bank of Korea has raised interest rates by 25 basis points to 3.5%. That is the highest level since 2008. The move was in line with expectations, but bond yields plunged after the central bank hinted its year-and-a-half-long tightening cycle could end. A BOK statement after the decision did not include the bank's usual reference to the need for more rate hikes, despite inflation being at its highest since 1998. Now, yields on the benchmark 10-year Japanese bond have hit a 7 and a half year high, breaking through the BOJ's new ceiling. The market rush came after Citigroup forecast the central bank could end its yield curve control policy next week. The yen also hit a seven-month high against the dollar on speculation of the pivot. China's imports and exports shrank in December but still came in better than expected as Beijing relaxed COVID-19 restrictions. Let's get out to Sam who's got more on the latest numbers for us. Good morning to you, Jeff, Karen and Steve. Happy Friday. Well, I mean, this trade data out today just confirms the slowdown we saw in Q4. And it's not a huge surprise that we saw exports and imports struggling in December. The market was largely expecting this, although they did do better than forecasts, actually. But just to paint the picture, if you look at the outbound shipments, they actually saw the worst performance since February 2020 at the height of the outbreak in China. Of course, when all those factories were locked down. So that just goes to show how bad the situation is here. Another red flag for exports in China, of course, is some of those imports because some of that material that's brought into the country is then re-exported. Now, imports also did better than expected, but we also saw a sharp fall still. So that just underscores the weak demand picture going on over in China at the moment, and particularly in the property sector. So it does seem to be a bit of a double whammy at the moment. We've got challenges at home and abroad, of course, in China. We've got this situation now where we've got from these COVID curbs, these lockdowns now to these rising cases. We've had reports of these factory workers being infected and that has led to a reduction certainly in production. And at the same time, we've now gone from this government-imposed lockdown to now self-imposed quarantine because of the fear factor around the virus. So that's the demand story over in China. The view in the market is that there is going to be a lag between the reopening we've just seen and a meaningful pickup in some of that demand by which time some of those big trading partners like the US could potentially be in a recession. So that is expected to largely continue to weigh on those exports, which of course we've got to remember over the last couple of years has really been the bright spot in the economy uh, and really been pulling the weight. So it does seem like this data is suggesting that China is not going to be able to export its way out of slowing growth at the moment. However, because we have seen, of course, this pickup in demand because of the reopening, things are are expected to get better, uh, certainly in the second half uh, of the year. Uh, and that is once, of course, China gets over this bumpiness that it's seeing with these rising cases. And particularly, of course, next week when the Chinese New Year kicks off, guys. And there are a lot of concerns about, of course, these cases spreading to the hinterland. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to CNBC.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.